0: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Cloud Security Alliance, recorded live at London Olympia as part of InfoSec Europe 2017. Presented by Richard Morrell. Recording at InfoSec London 2017 in a very noisy corner of London Olympia, I'm joined by Chris Hodson from Zscaler.
1: Hi, good afternoon, Richard.
0: You're here to dispel some FUD. Talk to me.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, we were just chatting off air then around the fear, uncertainty and doubt of cloud computing. So I've spent a lot of time, uh, I suppose, being an advocate of cloud. Now that comes from pre my z of time. And I say Z instead of Z, it's too much time in the US. Um, around capabilities. So I've just actually finished a briefing around um was security conservation, which I'm sure is a term you're familiar from NIST, around ensuring that you have a set of security capabilities, I suppose, commensurate or appropriate for the classification of data. So if that data resides on premise, that data resides on a mobile phone, in the cloud, wherever it is, ensuring that you have the right controls, the right capabilities. When I say FUD, I'm talking about dispelling the FUD, I think we seem to think that in some way we need to concede capability or have a differing security posture if something is on premise or something is in the cloud. And, you know, speaking completely openly, I think that's a lot to do with I preconceptions. I think a lot of the time we assume because we're buying a solution from a cloud service provider, for example, that potentially in some way, we can't enforce the same rigor around compliance, around legislation, around technical controls. My honest view, you can probably enforce more a lot of cloud security providers out there, including Zscaler, were bought, were made for the cloud and have been secured accordingly. The data center of Zscaler, of Amazon, of whoever you're talking to out there, you know, has been built with multi-tenancy in mind. It's been built to secure the important data of multiple customers. We have to, as an organization, comply with legal regulations in multiple different geos. So when I say about FUD, I think it's just about going into things with your eyes open. It's about ensuring that if something is required when your data is in your data centre with some blinking lights that you can look at, that you have those same capabilities when it's in the cloud.
0: But if you look at the difference in private and public sector going back, I mean, if you'd said label protect, people in public sector knew what you meant, but in the private sector... Sorry, could you repeat the question? But if you think about how private and public sector handled, used to handle things like label protect and classified, public sector got it, private sector didn't.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think certainly we're seeing more and more of that, I think from an AWS perspective, I think GovCloud has actually addressed some of the problems around the way that you would store sensitive information. I I still think there are some industries that um, are relying on a policy-driven approach, so historical um, security artifacts that say thou must not do this, thou must not do that. But I've done an awful lot around, I suppose, risk management. An awful lot around um, identifying um, impact to an organization or identifying vulnerabilities in a solution or in a hosting environment. And you know, fundamentally, I'll come back to my previous point, you know, if you have a requirement for you know, inline AV, you have a requirement for DLP controls, TLS interception, they shouldn't change if you shift your data from being in your data center to a public cloud data center. Yes, I agree, there have been issues previously where someone will say we will not put this classification of data in the cloud, but I think we're seeing less and less of that. I think as the economies of scale as the benefits to all types of organizations with the elasticity, time to market the cost savings of cloud and now we're starting to see companies like our own I must say you know the security benefits of doing certain things in the cloud what we want to do as companies and the CISOs and CIOs that I talk to we want to connect users to their applications we want to connect users to their data and I spoke earlier and I'm sure in some areas of infosec this might be unpopular but the network is becoming increasingly irrelevant we're seeing more and more consumption and use of cloud services, so that north-south traffic. You know, we're increasingly seeing less east-west. As organizations become more progressive and they're moving their workloads to an IaaS or a SaaS environment, why should they be backhauling all that data through expensive MPLS networks to go out to the public cloud when to enable your user to be more efficient, to be more effective, to be happier, to have a better user experience? They want to break out locally. They want to go straight to the cloud. So I suppose that user demand I'm seeing firsthand is kind of shaping some of these organizational decisions of where they house their data.
0: It's also about life cycle as well though, isn't
1: it? From a a data control perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's historically been one of the challenges with cloud, if I'm brutally honest. One of the questions I get asked a lot is, what about data portability? What do you do about um, a cloud service provider having um, information retained? What happens if we move to another cloud service provider? And my view on that is, these are kind of your process and your people controls that you need to get right. So I think as we move to cloud, and it's, it's something I wrote about quite recently in a thesis I was writing, was quite often when we controlled the IT, we controlled the data, we controlled the people, we applied a lot of technical controls. I think certainly from a due diligence perspective, as we move our services to cloud, we have to get other teams involved that don't sit in IT. So our procurement teams, our legal teams, to actually vet these contracts, and make sure that you know if I do decide to go from Azure to AWS, that there are data portability controls in there. There are clauses within contracts that say data will either be returned to me or securely deleted. I think some of the, I we we'll bring it back to that FUD point from earlier, some of those kind of scare tactics of, well, you know, cloud in some way is this black box that you have no control over, I think maybe that was the case 15 years ago potentially with some vendors and some CSPs, I don't think that's the case anymore.
0: But also you've got organisations who have multi-territory operations.
1: Yes, completely, and I think, and this was a question that was raised to me in a talk earlier today, was, you know, as organisations move to the cloud, what do we do about the legal implications? What do we do about data privacy? And my view on that is the same things we did about data privacy when we had our own data centres in multiple jurisdictions. You need to understand and have visibility over the data, over the controls that you apply. So if in your particular region or in your territory, data cannot go outside the boundaries of that country, you need to ensure that your cloud service provider, that your solution provider, is able to, for example, tag that data in such a way that it doesn't leave that particular jurisdiction. Or, or if you adopt a cloud provider, so I'll give you a great example, we're in approximately 107 data centers around the world. So breaking out and actually having your traffic routed through a local node isn't a problem for us. I think that's a challenge. When you talk to some cloud providers, is we say we're globally distributed, but if you're globally globally distributed in let's say four or five countries, that's going to cause you some headaches with, I suppose, regulatory compliance and legal implications.
0: And a lot of the time, suppliers have to fill in questionnaires on a daily basis from customers, and ninety percent of the same the same questions.
1: Yeah, I think I think you know I think the CSA, I think you guys have helped certainly with with all. Yeah, we, we're automating some of that with CCMS. Again, I bring it back to that point of, is that really a cloud challenge? Or is that just, you know, we're increasingly dependent on technology within our businesses. So, and that's a bit of a philosophical question, but if cloud wasn't here, would we be seeing that increase in those kind of questionnaires, in those surveys from our procurement teams, from our technology suppliers anyway? I'm not so sure. I think possibly we would be.
0: How does Zscaler start solving the problem?
1: I think... If I'm complete, and I'll I'll try and avoid sounding like a marketing brochure, I I think the most important thing is that we were born in the cloud for the cloud. So I talk to a lot of organizations who um, have tried other cloud providers that have come from an appliance background. So you've essentially had um, appliances within a data center, they've been shifted from your data center to the vendor's data center, and they've called that a cloud platform. Now the problems with that are performance and efficiency. You know, if you took multiple power generators and put them in a garage together, you wouldn't call it a power plant. But the architecture, it isn't scalable, it isn't cost-effective, it isn't efficient. So we work on that by having, from the IP stack upwards, we are in software, we are in um, 107 data centers around the world, um, and we passionately believe about connecting users to their applications, users to their data. The fact that we sit there and we can connect, so if you're on the road, we would do it by a lightweight connector, our Z app. If you're in an office location, we would recommend some form of tunnel to our local enforcement node, so IPsec, GRE, pack file configurations. It's about facilitating a user in any location connecting to their important information. So we believe you should be treating everywhere like a Starbucks hotspot. The network shouldn't really be the defining factor in our security controls.
0: I think it's important that you're adding a dimension of security on top of what the CISO would expect
1: Yeah, I, I, I would agree, and I, I think because we're a proxy architecture, I think we sometimes get bundled into the proxy areas of assessment with capability, but because we're a proxy architecture, we're able to do so much more than just AV and URL filtering. And to, you, to your point around I suppose the Cisco's, um, the CISO's requirements, for me, it's visibility. So I constantly get asked, what is the biggest challenge? You as a CISO, what do you see as the biggest issue, the biggest challenge? And it's as we move to cloud, the CISO has lost its visibility. Speaking from my experience in the end user space, you'll have lots of organizations who will have what I call this pizza box architecture. They'll have appliance on top of appliance on top of appliance in their data centers. Works really well when your data and your users are in your data center. But, 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 but
0: <laughs> I, have, I have this approach with the appliance mentality that it's like Microsoft Office. In Word, how many functions they use? File, print, save, change of font. Yeah. They've got all these boxes, they use like 8% functionality. They do, you know, you have that.
1: You have almost, everyone talks about this 80-20 rule with consolidation, or certainly that's what I'm hearing from the more progressive CISOs now, is visibility is much more important than, you know, maybe technical capability that I never use, right? I wrote recently about the power of a platform. So it's much more important to be able to obtain telemetry, to obtain that information, from a set of services rather than having my personal view rather than having these loosely coupled point solutions so you go back to these people and you talk to them about their incident response process and if you've got seven or eight different security appliances involved in a cyber kill chain how do you possibly do any form of forensic analysis you've got logs coming out of your ears more often than not you've got different teams in different organizations who are looking after those appliances there's no cohesion
0: there's visibility but there's also the point where you're permanently in firefighting mode trying to find out what happened, not what's happening. Absolutely.
1: And that is a, that is a major problem there. And I, I think as well, an angle we haven't necessarily covered is the encrypted traffic angle. And that plays into this whole appliance mentality as well. Uh, you know, turning on the ability to inspect and identify encrypted traffic is computationally expensive. Generally in organizations, it means scaling out Appliances, buying in more power, more compute. So CISOs have to make that trade-off between the visibility and the security that they want versus the funding that they're going to get to apply those uh, appliances. And you're right, you don't have any proactivity there. It's a retrospective action. You're looking at yesterday's threats rather than, I suppose, securing yourself against what's going on now and what's going to be going on moving forward.
0: Chris, it's been great having you on the podcast. Where can people find more information?
1: I would suggest going to our website, www.zscaler.com
0: and if they're at the show where's the stand
1: the stand is on the ground floor and at the back somewhere if i'm being brutally honest richard i don't have our stand number to have but we're very big and it's very colorful so please do check us out
0: excellent thanks for making the time cheers chris cheers thank you richard